This week, it was awesome to dive deep into the future of e-commerce with Michael Mayer, founder and CEO of Bottomless. Bottomless is an intelligent subscription. Instead of getting shipments on a set schedule, you get shipments based on usage. This is a fundamental unlock and new insight. Michael believes that our current e-commerce infrastructure models Internet 1.0. Bottomless is the next wave of how we take offline information online into an organized intelligent schema and subsequently use information technology to move up the S-curve of innovation in this space. In this conversation, we dove into a bunch of interesting concepts. Why 50% of a company is baked in from the founding moment, how information consumption and focused dissatisfaction is the recipe for original insights, why the unlock in Grocery 2.0 is about solving an information problem, and the characteristics of products that are good candidates for automatic reordering and byproducts of privacy when a company like Bottomless succeeds at scale. It was a bunch of fun to have Michael on, so let's dive in. Michael, really excited to have you on the show today and, and talk about Bottomless uh, and a bunch of other things. You know, your thoughts on the land grab that's currently taking place for the consumer internet um, and relatedly how you're thinking about COVID-19. But, you know, before we dive in too deeply, tell us a little bit more about your background. Okay, so I'm a self-taught developer. Um, I, I taught myself to code while going through school um, and also working on the side. Um, I, 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 uh, I sort of like got my first job as a developer, um, saw how powerful this was and how, how incredible it was and, and, and then just started my company pretty quickly after that. Um, so my background is in economics, a degree in economics and then self-taught software development and then founding this company. And your journey to bottomless itself was was pretty interesting, right? Because you you kind of take this background and you've got a philosophy and a perspective on exploration. And your journey to bottomless was marked by exploration. Talk a little bit more about kind of this idea and perspective on exploring and and sometimes over exploring, you know, really before entering into a new idea. Um, I I think like fifty percent of what happens to a company is baked in from the founding moment. Um, that's something I've definitely found. I'm um, doing a company and going through Wyominator and seeing a bunch of other companies. Um, you, you sort of start with this founding vector and gets you pointed off in a certain direction in, in space. Um, and you can make a lot of course corrections. Um, that vector is so important um, in terms of just determining what you're going to work on, um, your founding principles, what you believe to be true about the world that you're trying to prove. Um, so I do think that a lot of people underexplore what they're going to work on before they get started. Um, they sort of, they, they work on something that seems like a good idea, but when you dig, um, it doesn't seem like they have any real foundational truths that they believe to be true. Um, that, that maybe is a gap in the universe in a sense, because a lot of, if, if it, if it doesn't exist, uh, there has to be some sort of, um, reason why. Um, and maybe you have some insight about timing or some insight about um, what some particular customer wants. Um, but I, I feel like that founding truth is a lot more important than people give credit to. And then the the flip side of that coin is once you have this vector going, um, what matters a lot more is really just raw execution. Um, so people definitely underexplore in the beginning and then probably overexplore later like for bottomless for example a lot of what we do is baked in we're doing automatic reordering um we could do a complete pivot but even then you know a lot of the surrounding ideas i have about bottomless about what we could do in the future or what we would pivot into if suddenly for whatever reason this fell apart are also related to automatic reordering um and we have developed a lot of unique insights just from talking to customers um in this space and thinking about this space you know going to sleep thinking about this space waking up 
thinking about this space, coming for a run, thinking about this space. So that sort of unique insight that the reordering process for goods is totally broken and janky um, really actually matters quite a bit more than people think. I like the framing of, of thinking that kind of 50% of the, the outcome is baked into the, the founding itself or kind of the starting point on the company. Um, you mentioned kind of this importance around insights, right? And I'm curious when you think about gathering insights, um, how do you come to those unique insights, right? So in building a, you know, a future of the world or in, in really founding any sort of startup, you by definition believe, you know, a world, hypo a hypo you have a hypothesis of the view of the world that's not being, you know, inbaked into reality today, right? And so talk a little bit more about how you think about actually developing unique insights, uh, especially in a time, interestingly, I, I find in the tech community, you know, where we're all reading the same things, we're all talking to each other. Um, and so, you know, now more than ever before, I think the getting out of the echo chambers or finding a way to actually think of unique kind of first principle thought is actually getting harder than ever. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've realized about myself is I don't really have any insights out of a vacuum. Um, I never find myself contemplating something that is not related to some sort of information that has come into my mind recently. Um, whether that's deliberate or not deliberate, um, you know, I, I usually don't watch much TV, but recently I, I was watching the show Eastbound and Down on HBO, and I, I found myself, I had some dream that was like an episode out of that show, and I realized, okay, I need to cut back on my TV watching because I don't really want to be subconsciously chewing through this universe. I want to be, like, it's not the most productive use of my subconscious space. Um, but, I, so I, I, have a, I have a theory that, the information that you consume is essentially the raw material for the insights that you come up with, uh, whether that's conscious and you're, you're trying to think about something, you're going to have all this raw material that's already in your mind or it's subconscious. You know, you just on a run or in the shower and something pops in your mind. Um, a really illustrative example is how Paul Graham came up with using a web browser um, instead of uh, basically the Microsoft stack to make SAS tools. So he basically invented that. Um, and, he describes it as basically he was sleeping, like falling asleep. And he just had this epiphany, like a light be lightning bolt. And he sat up like a cartoon is how he describes it, like an L straight up in bed, um, realizing that you could use the browser links um, to create actions. And then he wouldn't have to build on Microsoft. Um, and, you know, the way he describes it is he just really, really hated building on Microsoft. Right. So it's not just about the information you consume. It's also about your passions um, and what you care about. And maybe somebody back then might have met Paul Graham and think, God, this guy is so like it's so annoying how he's just ranting about how building on the Microsoft stack sucks and how he wants to build on the browser. Um, but in reality, he was focusing on how much something sucked that really did suck. Uh, and that really kept his mind focused on this. Um, and so it's not just information, it's also passions and motivation. I think in my partner and I's case, we were focused before we started Bottomless for years about how much grocery shopping sucks um, and how much these like newfangled tools to do grocery shopping by basically making a huge, uh, huge like order by going to all these web pages and inputting the same stuff every week was just ridiculous. Um, and, and how having to schlep down to the store for the same thing over and over was ridiculous. And so we were really, really focused for many months before we started on Bottomless about how absurd this part of the universe was. Um, and so we were just really motivated um, 
and I don't want to say motivated because we necessarily were thinking we were going to solve it, but we were really just dissatisfied in a very focused way on something about the world that should be better. Um, so I think in terms of coming up with startup ideas, it's important to have really um, focused dissatisfaction, <laughs> um, curated, curated dissatisfaction, and also curated information so that the raw materials in your minds are right. You know, so Paul Graham spent a lot of time hacking around on these new browsers um, that were obviously going to be the future. So he sort of had like the combination of hating working, building on Windows and not wanting to do it and the information of like the nitty gritty of how browser links worked. So you clicked on it, it did something on the server and it sent something back and like he realized, wow, we could do lots of stuff, right? So, um, I, I would say that's that's the uh, that's the recipe: curated dissatisfaction, curated information. So let's talk about that curated dissatisfaction and curated information in in the spirit of bottomless, right? And it's it's a culmination, you know, bottomless, and and why I wanted to focus at the outset on a little bit of your you know journey to bottomless, as well as kind of the philosophy behind how you think about these ideas, is because I see a culmination of a couple of different threads, right? When you think about bottomless, certainly you know intensive exploration before entering into the idea. Um, having a unique insight and unique, you know, perspective on kind of the the shape of the world and where the world is going. Um, and so, tell us a little bit more about Bottomless, right? What it is, and and you were alluding a little bit to your, you know, inspiration <laughs> for founding the company. Right. So, um, Bottomless is basically a solution to this problem I alluded to earlier of having to get the same stuff over and over again, um, and the absurdity for something that I buy every two weeks. Um, having to do it 26 times in a year. Um, and so essentially you want to say, hey, I want this thing. Um, and then you shouldn't have to indicate the timing over and over. Um, and the only reason people have to indicate the timing is because they're the only ones with the information about how much they have and when they're going to need more. And that was sort of the core insight um, is, hey, this is an information problem. Um, and whenever you can reformulate something as an information problem, you can solve it with information technology. So then we sort of work backwards. How do you get the information? And we spent a lot of time thinking about like text bots, you know, which a lot of people are trying that. Uh, I'm going to text you every week and ask you how much you have, which uh, is really just another way of doing like the, what, what the, the grocery people are doing now where you're like inputting information all the time. Um, then we realized, Hey, like the real source of truth of how much you have could be how much it weighs. Um, and scales cost like $2 on Alibaba. So it's a very cheap technology and Wi-Fi chips cost a dollar. Um, and so that's also an element of curated information, right? Like I knew that Wi-Fi chips had gone from costing $20 to a dollar. Um, so it was just something in the back of my mind. Um, anyways, I'll get to what it actually is. <laughs> it's basically a smart subscription where uh, we send you a little Wi-Fi scale um, that you put in your kitchen, wherever you're gonna store um, your goods. In this case, we're starting with coffee. So basically you buy coffee once, we send you a smart scale, you put the smart scale where you store your coffee, you store your coffee on top, you can sort it in a container or in the bag. Um, and then we always know how much coffee you have, how fast you're going through it. We're able to send you reorders that just arrive when you need it. Um, so it's like a usage-based subscription um, that you don't really have to focus on paying for the hardware or anything. It's It just comes for free. Um, and um, and we focus on selling you good quality coffee. Why coffee? That's a good question. Um, so there's two elements to this. Um, first of all, coffee is way better when it's fresh, straight from the roaster. Um, so when my partner and I were talking about this um, problem of reordering, the one thing we really had a big problem was, was with was uh, coffee. Um, hmm. 
we lived across the street from the grocery store. We still hated grocery shopping, but um, it was less of a problem than coffee for us. We had to go to an actual roaster to get their coffee or be going to their Shopify store every week or two. Um, and we could do neither of those consistently. So we were frustrated getting lower quality coffee from the grocery store. So there's the personal story um, of like, that's literally something we wanted to have. Uh, and then there's sort of the business side of the story where we sort of thought through, well, there's a couple elements that would make a product good for this sort of technology. Um, you know, it's profitable to ship. Um, uh, it's something people consume regularly, et cetera, et cetera. And there's probably five or 10 different verticals that would qualify really well for that. Um, and, uh, coffee was just something we knew we wanted. So we knew other people would want it too. When I, when I hear kind of the concept and then I hear the idea of starting with coffee, you know, what immediately goes on in my mind is Amazon and starting with books, right? So talk about kind of the way you think about it from, is this the first of many, you know, verticals, right? And what are some of those characteristics right behind a good like coffee that make it a good candidate for bottomless? I, I, I love that analogy. That's definitely a way we've thought about it before. You know, you just iron out this new distribution method. Um, and then once it's ironed out, you can basically um, apply it to anything. So people who knew about Amazon maybe would not think they would be selling microwaves, um, but now they sell microwaves. Um, so that's sort of our future. Uh, we're going to start with coffee. We're going to move to other things that are profitable to ship one off. Um, and people want to keep in their house. And ideally it's something that you, it's hard to find a really quality version in the grocery store. Um, so really just like the bread and butter D2C businesses that are repeat purchases um, is probably where we're gonna go next, roll out through all of those things. Um, and then eventually we'll be selling the equivalent of microwaves that people don't even expect. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, again, kind of an, another place my mind goes is by being in home, you're really opening up access to a new data set and you're bringing it online, right? Which is getting a better perspective of what are the stock levels of any type of skew, right? In home, you, you can have a separate argument and discussion on whether it makes sense to be inventory cataloged on bottomless, right? How profitable it is, so on and so forth. But the reality is, is by at least shipping these sensors right, and getting actually into the home environment, you are bringing information online that wasn't, you know, there before. And we've seen this with other marketplaces, right, which is once you bring supply online, you actually make it discoverable, new platforms can be built, right? Is that how you think about it? Or how does how does the concept, you know, kind of resonate with you? Well, going back to this idea of reformulating something as an information problem, um, a lot of sort of breakthrough marketplaces uh, tend to be something that um, gets really inform important information onto the network. Um, so Uber exploded because suddenly people's locations was like available to the internet. Um, and, and, um, you know, even basically any, you can, you can reformulate any large technology company as making some important information sort of legible, uh, to users. Even Google made like the internet itself legible to users. Um, you know, so, I definitely think bottomless is making some really important piece of information, which is like demand, <laughs> consumer demand for consumables, um, legible to the network and to a network of suppliers. Um, that's how I would formulate that. I, I really like, I, I like that legible analogy a lot. Um, I was at a startup, you know, probably about four or five years ago or series A company out in the Valley. Um, and we, we were solving the problem around legal research. And the idea basically was you had these two massive players in the space. 
um, and the way that legal resources historically been formulated is like Google search, right? On Google, you never go to page two. You always get what you need in the first four links, right? But when you're studying case law, right, or the law, you actually do want to see search in a different way. You want to see it more visual. You want to see the lineage. Um, and and I, I like that. I say that because I say that I like the framing a lot because what we were, I guess, ultimately trying to solve for, though we never really thought about it this way, was making case law legible, right? Bringing it on in a way in which it could actually be uncovered and used by a user in a different way. Another element that we were really looking to solve for was time, right? And I, I often find these types of products, these types of companies can really get broken into at the unit level um, around ultimately being labor saving machines, right? Kind of time machines. And if we think about time as our most valuable commodity, you know, we'll see a premium that consumers place, you know, on the product that of course, you know, increases the asset value. How do you think about that concept um, when you think about bottomless? Well, um, illegible things tend to waste time. Yeah. Um, you know, Yahoo was the original way of organizing the internet and it was a real waste of time to be working through a network of uh, tree links basically to find what you needed. Um, so by making it, organizing it in a new way that's, you know, it's interesting to describe Google as making it more legible because essentially it's 100% illegible until you type in a search, right? Yeah. Um, but, but it is making it more legible in, in a fundamental way. Um, and, and so when you, when, you make something, when you make something fundamentally better, you, you tend to save a lot of time. Um, time's the ultimate currency, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big reason we're doing what we're doing is that um, you know, you're not really adding any value to your life buying the same stuff over and over again. It's, it's one of those things that is still a holdout from you know, the 20th century and, and beyond. Um, you know, we've automated washing your dishes to some degree. Uh, we've automated doing your laundry to some degree, but the grocery shopping schlep um, still exists. You know, when you talk to busy parents, what do you think is the, the thing that, that they really don't like to do that takes a lot of time? One of the big things is still grocery shopping. Obviously, there's childcare itself. Um, you're never going to automate that away, I don't think, maybe until we have general uh, uh, automated intelligence. But, um, you know, Grocery shopping is a schlep that should be automated. That's not. And so let's talk about let's talk about how it fits and how bottomless fits into the broader ecosystem, right? Um, it's an interesting time, right? And I, I want to dive into that separately because there's a, obviously a huge tailwind of e-commerce and, and and online shopping that's going on right now. Uh, but when you think about kind of grocery shopping, that space, you've got a couple of different buckets, right? So on one hand, you've got the classical incumbents, the Amazon, the WalMarts, et cetera, the world. Another bucket is you have these delivery marketplaces, right? And so you can look at the DoorDashes, et cetera, as the world, but primarily in this space, it's, it's a company like Nitstacart. Um, and then you've got the emerging kind of tech computer vision type providers. So I had the CEO of Standard Cognition on the podcast um, a couple months ago. And SC has raised close to $100 million. And basically, you know, they're developing all the technology that they can sell to other retailers to basically compete with Amazon Go stores. So you have a lot of different angles at which folks are attacking this problem. How do you think about where bottomless fits in the ecosystem? Sure. So I think Amazon grocery, um, Instacart grocery are, are in a sense like a promise of um, the internet 1.0. Um, these were all ideas that existed in the beginning of the dot-com bubble. They were just sort of obvious things that you could do with the internet. Um, these, this new technology to like 
put these forms into anybody's house without having them to have to install like an application, right? Um, so everybody knew this was gonna happen. It failed because there wasn't high enough internet penetration. Um, so you had to sort of start with one-off things um, like buying a single book or whatever, and then eventually build out to that. Um, so yeah, I really see Instacart, Amazon Fresh, these sort of things uh, like Walmart, Walmart's grocery efforts as like the promise the promise of the 90s finally coming true. Um, so it's like the full deployment. It's the full deployment of the internet. And it's, it's sort of like an indication that we finally reached that stage where we've deployed all of the obvious ideas from the internet that should have worked back then, but we're not quite mature enough. Um, so now I think we're sort of entering into the, the next phase. Um, I think smartphones were obviously sort of the big bang, big bang moment for that. Um, that sort of enabled Instacart, I guess you could say, um, sort of standard cognition, I think is a lot closer to what we're doing, which is sort of trying to create their own input devices um, to, to get information that's important. So the smartphone was a beautiful thing because it, it created all of this important information, like I was talking about, um, just out of the blue, uh, location information, uh, the camera, all of that sort of visual information um, that, could, that could be processed. So it's this massive big bang of new information available to the internet. Um, and so that's sort of like run out, we're doing all the things we can do, Postmates, Instacart, things like that. Um, and then how do you move forward? I think the answer is basically to create the inputs that you need. Uh, that's what Bottomless is doing. We're creating this inputs. It would be amazing if people already had these like smart weight things in their houses. Um, but then again, it would already be done. Uh, there would already be a hundred billion dollar company doing what Bottomless is doing if that existed. So we sort of have to do it ourselves. Uh, and standard cognition, um, I remember they did a talk when we were in YC. Um, one of the people, I think he was one of the technical people, not the CEO. And a lot of what he talked about is just how hard it was to actually make all of the IT work from all of these cameras. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, it's sort of like a, another um, eruption, I guess, is, is what I think we're doing, just getting the next phase off the ground. And I think when we look back in 20 years, uh, it's going to be obvious. There's going to be lots more companies similar to bottomless, similar to standard cognition that are sort of creating information sources um, to be solving this problem. Yeah, it's definitely an, it's definitely a non-trivial problem. I remember from, uh, from the conversation I was having with Jordan, you know, we, one of the things we were kind of going back and forth on, neither of us could, you know, we were both kind of racking our heads on it was actually why Amazon go announced like a year in advance of actually putting out stores. Um, because they could have worked on this in stealth and just completely taken all the air out of the market by just one day opening up, you know, 500 Amazon Go stores all over the country, right? Um, it's it's interesting also because I think one of the things I've I've chatted with folks about not knowing anything on uh, about the numbers or the insides of Instacart is, you know, why does Instacart become such a compelling opportunity? Obviously, the absolute dollar uh, market that they're chasing is massive, um, but in jumping kind of from the 1.0 to 2.0 framing. And I, I like the way you frame that. I've always thought that the real value in that business comes from capturing distribution and scale and then being able to be the default operating system inside the home, right? So you can yeah. go into a fridge in the future and there's an Instacart API or application or so, and it's just automatically, right? Reordering so on and so forth. That always felt like where the true value is. Um, yeah. And the question is, is do you get there by going after distribution first, right? Which you could argue they're doing, right? Uh, but then you have a very complex CapEx intensive technology problem to solve on the back end. 
right? Yeah, or hundreds of millions start, of dollars. <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Um, or do you start from the opposite perspective and say, you know what, let me take the skew of coffee or let me build from the ground up, right, on this basis and this thesis, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm biased, but I like what we're doing because... <laughs> Uh, you know, Instacart's building on top of this layer of the grocery store, and it's just fundamentally going to be more expensive. Um, so they're they're sort of capped in how far they can go, and obviously they've gone really far, probably more than I would have predicted. Um, so hats off to them. Um, but they're still, you know, you still have these trucks going through this distribution network, and then basically putting the stuff in the grocery store. And then you essentially have this underclass of labor that's doing stuff for you. And that's never going to scale beyond like 10% of the population. You'd never see more than 10% of the population that has a dedicated underclass to do a, um, to do a chore for them. Yep. So, uh, I, I don't see that scaling to hundred percent of the households in America. Um, obviously the, 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 the obvious rebuttal to that is like, Hey, you know, grocery stores are, have people employed. So there's no reason to, to believe that. But, um, I think, I think reimagining the supply chain to not, to not sort of float on top of this, is is much better because you can be a lot more efficient. That's one of the cool things that we're doing with Bottomless is that um, we are able to predict demand ahead of time. So we can sort of push to people instead of waiting for people to pull. So when you have to wait for people to pull, it's very cap CapEx intensive. Um, you have to like, that's basically Amazon is pouring all their cash flow from e-commerce con consistently into building out this CapEx so they can be faster and faster and faster. Um, so we don't actually need to be that fast because we're predicting ahead of time. Instacart's a demand aggregation play for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, and then they, they obviously have this other intent to like build out a more efficient system. I, I'm pretty sure Instacart just broke even for the first time now with the- Nails being up 450%, right? Since December because of COVID, right? So it tells you kind of from the outside in how much cash they're actually burning. One interesting framing, right, of what you're saying, Michael, is is actually kind of when, again, when you think about back to that 1.0, 2.0 world, I think that's actually behaviorally where we are, right? So again, on one side, you can have the discussion point, which is, you know, the pets.com, the, the web vans, et cetera, of the world were ideas of the 90s, right? And we're able to have them now because you're not relying on CapEx, you've got, you know, a supercomputer in your pocket, so on and so forth. And I think behaviorally, it is, it's, you know, it's reminiscent of where we are. It's why, you know, a lot of these companies, the DoorDashes, the Postmates, et cetera, the world, you know, are doing so well, at least from a distribution and, and kind of top line bookings perspective, um, because that's where we are behaviorally. And I think what you're capturing in many senses is, you know, um, and, and you can kind of think about this generationally, right? Like if, if I ask my parents, what are you comfortable with? They're getting really comfortable with Instacart now, but it was a, it was a movement, right? It was kind of a shift, right? In our generation, I think in, in many respects, you have native comfort with something like an Instacart, but you're looking for as many offsets of your time as possible, right? And so if you can at least identify a couple SKUs in the house where you say, okay, you know what? I can take coffee off of Instacart, right? Or off of any delivery system because sure, they've got the intelligence of re-recommending, hey, do you want to order this again? So on and so forth but I don't have the ability to put it on a recurring schedule, right? I also don't have the, uh, have as good of an ability to unbundle. Instacart is starting to, has started doing this a little bit better as of late, but it's actually a non-trivial problem on the backend side logistically to have multiple shoppers going to multiple stores for multiple SKUs, right? But as a buyer, right, the way that I think about buying is I want one SKU from Whole Foods, I want one SKU from X, and I want one SKU from Y, and to me, that's just a card of three orders. 
right? For Instacart, it's a non-trivial problem of three different shoppers in three different locations for a very small dollar item, right? So I, I do think that there is there is this element which is starting off with a core item like coffee, expanding to distribution of other core items that have those similar characteristics is probably matched decently from a where we are behaviorally um, in, in just, you know, in 2020 itself. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially why Amazon won um, and all these other people like Webvan did not win. Um, it's because they were trying to go too broad uh, when the market wasn't really ready for it. They were just peeling off like the perfect product. Uh, I do think something like bottomless will exist for 10 or 15 things in your house. Maybe not exactly in the same formulation it is now. We're probably in like the, um, the Palm Pilot era of the bottomless type technology. Um, but, uh, you know, like just doing one thing well um, is what Amazon did. They aggregated a lot more customers than everybody else. Everybody thought maybe, maybe a lot of people thought they were sort of like, funny because they're just selling books and they're not as serious as um you know these other companies that are trying to sell a lot more things um but whoever has the most amount of customers eventually wins and you can sort of like roll out more verticals to those it's like the classic SaaS playbook of you get one tool in the door and you start pushing other things down the channel so i'm glad you recognize our strategy uh i hope uh future competitors are not listening um, <laughs> <laughs> um so that, maybe the, people smart enough that we should be scared of them so it doesn't that's matter the, that's the really attractive part right is in many senses this truly does mirror, I mean, and obviously it's a subscription business, right? But it, it, it obviously has a hardware component. There's a software component. It really does mirror the best of SaaS in many ways, which is, yeah. you know, once you do get in your focus on a very specific problem and coffee is a great problem because it's a massive market and people really care about coffee, right? And care about where they're getting it from. They care about the story. They care about the taste. I think all of those elements make for good characteristics, right? Even for future SKUs for bottomless. Um, it's interesting because I also wonder if kind of the, what the philosophical challenge, if I'm putting an investor hat on and evaluating the business, what's the best objection that I would have for the business? So, um, you know, the lazy one, I'm sure you're on the receiving end of is Amazon will just do it. Right. Um, if that was the case with every startup, we would never have startups. Yeah. I wouldn't (laughs) even bother to address that one. (laughs) Um, but where, where my mind goes is more so actually around fundamental behavior shifts, right? Are you betting basically in, in believing in bottomless and believing in kind of a bottomless future in some respect, it feels like I'm betting on how much people will offset convenience for privacy. Um, that was something I talked with the standard cognition guys a lot about, because one of the things we were talking about is actually once you start aggregating this information at scale in terms of knowing in their context, in knowing exactly where people are in store, et cetera, it actually becomes, you know, kind of a scary intelligence repository of data, right? It's no longer a, a benign, you know, consumer data platform. It actually becomes a, a pretty robust and, and um, a valuable data set. And so when, when you've kind of heard, um, you know, best objections to the business and, and leave out kind of the fraught, you know, obviously operational complexity. Yeah. This is, you know, on the back end, not an easy problem to solve, et cetera. But what's been the hypothesis or kind of a conceptual best objection that you've heard to this working? Yeah, so it's actually pretty hard to make this work properly. Um, so a lot of what we do is really just process improvements that um, that that are sort of going to be hard to copy. Um, but uh, I think let me let me talk about this. So privacy. The, the discussion around privacy drives me nuts sometimes. What can I say about this? Um, people 
want privacy, but also they want to not have privacy sometimes. I mean, look at, look at what's happening with coronavirus. People are stuck in their homes. They actually demand to not have privacy. Yep. They are, they're going on SaaS tools to put a video of themselves in their home just to not have privacy because they can't stand having this much privacy. It's not um, even, it's not even just, just consumers itself. I'm, I'm talking to a, um, to a company right now um, where their, their fundamental thesis on the world and they've had an a significant influx because of coronavirus has been they're building kind of the data layer and the pipes between um, disparate hospital systems. Because when these types of pandemics or so occur in your own regional municipality, you can't get the data from the police department, the fire department, the health department, right? So on and so forth. Yeah, um, totally. So, um, I mean, privacy, I don't want to say privacy is not valuable. Um, we definitely value our customers' privacy. We don't put anything in the scales other than a weight sensor. Um, you know, we could sneak other stuff in there. We don't want to do that, even if it would be valuable to us, because, uh, you know, you want to focus on your core business. Um, our core business is reordering. Um, so there's no, there's no point monkeying around with anything else. Um, but you know, smartphones are essentially an anti-privacy device. Um, you know, there's no way, um, even my significant other would have this much information about me that Google has about me and I want them to have it. Um, if, 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 if I bought an Apple device and the GPS didn't work, I would be pissed and I would return it because I don't actually want to have privacy. So I think you have like this hardcore group of uh, pearl clutchers uh, that think any new information being put on the network is a bad thing. I think it's wrong. I think people want information to be out there, especially stuff like like the weight of your coffee. You know, if I could give somebody 100% access, if I could give the entire world 100% access to the weight of my coffee, but know that I don't have to worry about buying coffee again, I would just do it. Uh, obviously, with bottomless, that's not the case. Uh, your 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 weight is private, so I I don't really think privacy is much of a concern here. I think it's much less invasive than Google Maps. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I, I don't think so. I think the biggest, the best objection to us is, okay, yes, automatic reordering is going to be a thing. People are going to be willing to install things as long as they don't have to spend a lot of money. So your core thesis is right. Um, but, you know, the form factor is going to be different. And I, I honestly have 10 different form factors in my mind that I think could work as well. Um, so that's why I said, I, I think we're in like the Palm Pilot era right now. Um, and, and so it, it's just a question of getting the form factor right and continuing to improve it. And, you know, we're on like the sixth version of our scale in three years. Um, so we are trying to do that. Um, but I think that would be the best objection, honestly. What are the best perspectives you've heard on, you know, not a thesis that form factor is going to be different, right, in and of itself? Um, if I kind of think in a problem solution framework, that's the problem. What have you heard as suggestions or perspectives on what that best form factor actually is going to be? Oh man, I, I'm gonna keep those in my back pocket. Um, yeah. I have a competitive advantage because I've been thinking about this all day, every day for years now. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not gonna tell you and your listeners. They can think about it if they want. Fair point. <laughs> um, let's jump to let's jump to COVID. Let's jump to COVID and how you're operating in this environment. It's a it's an interesting time. Um, for business in general, to say the least. Um, you're certainly on the backs of a lot of tailwinds of e-commerce growth. It's it's interesting. I was uh, having a conversation with a friend the other day, and I think I'm going to put a quick post out on this of, you know, um, the questions I've been getting a lot of is, you know, why isn't the stock market moving? It's just so disconnected with reality. 
I think there's a lot of you know deeper uh, systemic issues that folks that are much smarter than I can attest to. But at least a superficial you know look at the data tells you that we often look at kind of the S and P 500 as the proxy for the market, and people you know that's what flashes on CNBC every day, right? Um, and people say, hey, that's not really changing all that much. But underneath, there actually are significant shifts in just in that five in those 500 companies themselves. Energy companies are getting decimated. Large tech companies, especially e-commerce companies, are propping it up, right? And so while that is, you know, while as an index, it's remaining relatively flat or you know stabilizing a bit after a significant drop, underneath there are very deep sectoral shifts. And I'm curious how you've you've operated your business in this environment and what the impact has been for you, um, because you are on you know the tailwinds of that kind of e-commerce growth that's getting accelerated right now. Yeah. So I try really hard to not pay attention to the stock market um, because I think that's an example of information that can go into your mind um, that's not going to necessarily um, metastasize into something useful. I guess metastasize is the wrong word, develop into something useful. Um, But in terms of our business specifically, we're obviously seeing a huge tailwind. Um, We're we're doubling every 10 weeks right now, I think. Um, So um, we're just basically trying to keep up with demands. Um, In terms of my perspective on where this is going to go. Um, I think people are overestimating how much this is going to change the world mm. and not because the world isn't going to change. So the world is definitely going to change. Um, people are being forced to try all sorts of things that they normally wouldn't try. Uh, video conferencing, uh, online grocery orders, stuff like that. But this concept that suddenly people are going to have less demand for in-person events um, is crazy. Um, obviously people will be a little grossed out for a while, um, but there is no good substitute. Um, so I think the biggest change in the world is going to be an acceleration of things that were already, already going to happen. Right. So things that were already better, but people don't try it. So the internet was obviously better immediately right off the bat, but it took 10, 20 years for it to be installed into all of the U S. So all of these things that are going to take 10 or 20 years are going to take two years. Um, but it's only going to accelerate the things that were already going to happen. Are people going to be talking to their friends on Zoom, uh, you know, instead of going and meeting them at a bar? No way. I mean, no, no, no way in hell is that going to be the future just because people are doing it now. So you have to be able to see what is, uh, what is like a real shift and what is a temporary substitute that is actually still going to be inferior right? I think Instacart is still inferior. I don't even use Instacart most of the time I go to the grocery store. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, I think, yeah, they're going to see some, um, persistent improvement, but it's not going to stay at like five X their normal demands. Um, people are going to use Instacart. They're going to know that it sucks. And then they're going to move to some other better system like bottomless. (laughs) And again, I'm biased, but you you see the overall point that I'm making, um, is that people are over indexing what is going to change other than the things that were already going to change. Uh, just faster. I wonder how kind of supply chains are going to change. I, I think a lot, I think about that a lot. You have operations in China, right? What are you seeing over there, and how are you thinking about you know both from a risk reward uh, and efficiency perspective, you know, for bottomless, especially as it scales, right? How are you thinking about your supply chain, your glo- your global operations that you have? So uh, the impact on us having operations in China was really minimal. Um, essentially the Chinese take like a three week holiday in the beginning of the year. Um, Mm. and, uh, so that already disrupts production. So our production of units was already disrupted. Um, and then instead of coming back immediately and getting to work, 
they had a period of like three additional weeks. I don't remember exactly how long it was where they just didn't come back. Um, but then what the government said is, hey, if you can prove you have enough masks for your workers and like a few other like hand washing stations or whatever, you can open up. Um, then all the businesses opened up and they got back to work. Um, so we have really not seen an impact at all. We're producing um, units like right now as we're recording this podcast in China and there's, there's nothing going on. Um, the only thing that happened was the passenger flights, um, the amount of passenger flights going back and forth between China and the U.S. dramatically decreased. Um, and like half of the cargo bay in a passenger flight is just cargo, hmm. like air freight. And so we've seen air freight disruptions where it costs twice as much to air freight stuff because uh, there's just not as much supply. Um, but sea freight rates have stayed the same. Um, really not as much, not as much disruption as you would think. You, you had an interest, you had an interesting tweet lately, uh, and I really liked the framing of it, which was the U S doesn't have the capacity or the appetite for strong central government health surveillance, like the Chinese. Uh, but you fear we don't have the humility and sense of shared purpose, like the Peruvians talk a little bit more about that and kind of the genesis behind that thought process. Okay, yeah, so I, I sort of had a unique perspective on how China was handling this and also how Peru was handling this just through first parties. So, you know, we have people in China and my partner um, is originally from Peru. She came here when she was 18 years old. Um, so she still, you know, so with social media, you never really leave your country, right? Yep. You, you are always half, half your foot is still where you came from. Um, so what can I say about this? Um, so the Chinese really mobilized to handle coronavirus. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say that their reaction was perfect, but basically um, everywhere that people went, they had to scan a QR code that basically traced them wherever they were going. So they had that ready to go and they spun it up immediately. Um, and then everywhere they went, they also had their temperature checked. Um, and if you ever cross paths with somebody who, uh, who had their temperature checked and it was high and then they knew everywhere you went, you know, you'd be forced to self quarantine. So um, they basically had strong health surveillance that, that the U S just doesn't have the appetite nor the capacity to spin up from a central government perspective. Um, so, um, you know, we kind of have to come up with our own way to address this, right? That was, that was my thought process. And the Peruvians um, had a certain humility from the beginning. Their president went on TV and literally said, we are a third world country. We do not have ICU beds to handle this. I think the whole country of Peru has fewer ICU beds than um, the city where I'm sitting right now in Seattle. Um, they have 30 million people. They, we can't handle this. There's nothing we can do. So we need to locked down together and they actually there was a whole like grassroots and i don't know if it was actually propaganda it might be propaganda um like social media campaign um for everybody to like lock down together and it's very patriotic like uh, my partner showed me this video of like remember when we went to the world cup how together as peruvians we cheered for our country Right. That was how it started. And it had like the Peruvian national anthem and everybody wearing like the Peru soccer stuff and cheering because Peru was very proud to go to the World Cup and the last World Cup. And, and so this real nationalistic and proud um, approach. Um, and at least back when I made that tweet storm, it seemed to be working. I haven't really checked in on it. So I, I'm not an authoritative source on whether that worked. But that approach is also really unavailable to Americans. Uh, we are really not susceptible to a unifying nationalistic um, sort of approach to things unless 
we feel attacked by a very specific group that we can sort of see as others and then that unites us, but a virus is not another. You know, 9-11, there was another. Everyone could sort of momentarily unite. In this case, it's just, it's just a policy choice and, um, and it's not as uniting. So we sort of are, are screwed in that these two approaches that I've seen will not work. Uh, and I sort of ended the tweet storm by saying, you know, one thing unique to America is that um, people really feel like they can take action uh, and make an effort to do things about it. One thing that my partner said was in Peru, it seemed like no regular people were trying to do anything. Um, and, and in the US, at least in the YC network, it seems like half the uh, entrepreneurs pivoted to doing something to approach or to, to um, take on coronavirus. Uh, you know, there's all these like funding things by people who are running, running super important companies like the, the Stripe guys, uh, Tyler Cowan doing these fast grants, um, the people running Flexport importing PPE. Um, so I sort of tried to end that tweet storm on a, on a positive note that, you know, Americans have their own unique capability in that we can sort of take individual non-collective action that is outsized compared to maybe what other countries are doing. So I was hoping maybe we could find like a, like our own sort of unique approach. Um, I don't know how well that's worked. Obviously people are doing some stuff, but it seems like we're just squabbling. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because kind of the different culture, the, the identity of, um, of, of the countries is kind of playing out in the responses. I'm, I'm a firm believer in um, strengths are a double-sided coin of your weakness. And I'm also a firm believer in, you know, the general philosophy of double, doubling down on your strengths. Um, it's been interesting to see on the global stage kind of what that strength and opposite side of coin weakness has been and how in certain situations or environments it's it's really advantageous and in, in others it's disadvantageous i yeah. um yeah i mean uh that's like the flip side of the coin what my partner was telling me about her country in peru you know they have this collective action to really do something and they're able to quote crush the curve uh, uh but you know nobody individually is doing anything exactly. <laughs> other than what everybody else is doing so um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really interesting. I, you know, Michael, as we round out the conversation, I actually want to jump back a little bit to what we were what we were talking about before, um, and we didn't go too deep into it when you when you mentioned it, but it, it struck a thought in my mind, which was um, I've been having a lot of conversations with you know with founders with folks on just general perceptions on what you think you know what we think fundamentally changes about behavior and mindset you know coming out of COVID. Um, and it, it's a it's a very broad question, and obviously it's sectorally driven, and, and there's a lot of different ways to answer it or think about it. I'm curious about your thoughts specifically from the perspective of e-commerce. You you obviously talked about you know this this general philosophy of thinking of you know if we were already going to do it and it was inevitable and it was going to take 10, 20 years, it's going to be here in the next two years. Put some specifics to that, and and you know kind of wrap it around how you think about bottomless. Okay, so yeah, my partner and I were, were using online grocery before we started Bottomless and we sort of decided that it sucked and it wasn't really the future. Um, and, and I think that awareness is gonna come to a lot more people, obviously. Um, and so they're gonna have experience with this. Um, they're gonna experience the beauty of having stuff show up at your house without having to go and schlep and get it. And they're also gonna experience the pain. Uh, so, uh, I definitely think it's going to raise a lot of awareness in the e-commerce industry about um, what you can do and what you can't do. Um, it's going to create a lot of latent demand for solutions. Um, 
because people are essentially primed. You know, if I say, hey, um, you know, one of our main marketing taglines is like coffee subscriptions don't work. You know, they just don't work. And, and you have to, if people have never tried a coffee subscription, how are you going to convince them it doesn't work? Um, that, that's a very intellectual thing for them, not something that they've actually seen. And it's much harder to convince people of something that's more intellectual or abstract. So um, you're going to definitely have an increased appetite for next generation solutions, um, as well as obviously like a persistence of the demand for the solutions we have now, um, because there's going to be people that just like Instacart. I mean, there's people that live really far from a grocery store. Uh, there's people that are particularly sensitive to walking up and down a grocery store aisle and maybe are not particularly sensitive to the schlep of having to fill out a bunch of forms. Um, so you definitely are going to have this increased usage. I think it's going to be like a reversion to the mean, but not all the way. Um, in the tools we have now and an increased appetite for other tools. Likewise, um, you can see it in social. People are using Zoom to talk to their friends. Obviously, that's not the future, but the future might rhyme with that. Um, so, like I said earlier, I think people are definitely gonna still go to bars and meet with their friends and not Zoom with them on a Friday night. That's absurd. But people might discover that there was some element of that that they liked, you know, maybe Zooming with their family um, across the country or across the world um, was something that they discovered that actually was cool that they should have been doing to begin with. And without being forced to use Zoom with their friends, they never would have thought to use it with their family. So you definitely have these cascading effects and cascading awarenesses. Um, and somebody's going to be able to build. It's definitely a beautiful opportunity to build on top of these new awarenesses, like build a way to do video conferencing with your family better. Um, but don't try to make a way to do <laughs> video conferencing with your friends instead of going to bars. I, I think that's what I would say. I think that's right. It's it's interesting. I was I was joking with a friend the other day. I said, you know, there's um, there's really no reason before, you know, you wouldn't video conference with with family, so on and so forth. It's not like the internet got invented or Zoom got invented during coronavirus, right? But it yeah. forces you in an in a in a non-normal in an abnormal environment, which forces you in many respects to kind of recalibrate or rethink through behaviors. Um, so I, I do think I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities. I um, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, Zoom um, mirrors, you know, in, it, it does its best to mirror, you know, groups of people chatting, whether it's eight people, 10 people, et cetera. But if you're, you know, if you're in a group of eight or 10 people, it's it's not a normal social behavior to have one person talk, everybody listen, then the next person talk, right? You can have sidebars, you can have breakouts, et cetera. So I'm interested to see how people really kind of take many of those humanistic behaviors and actually build, you know, better video conferencing, better collaboration, so on and so forth, software for, for online. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know how the climate over like eons fluctuates on the earth, right? The earth gets really hot and then there's ice ages and it gets hot and there's ice ages. Um, this is sort of like a temporary um, uh, warming event for the internet. And then you see these like species just like being in parts of the planet that they really shouldn't people using SaaS tools to talk to their friends like five blocks away from them. That's just like, once the cooling comes back, all of the, that's just gonna go extinct. But you might see some evolution for things to evolve for the coming cooling. And, and definitely, you know, you might have these, these creatures that expand into areas where actually, you know what, this is a really good habitat um, and, and it's gonna continue. So um, maybe, that, maybe that's an interesting analogy.
Yeah, no, Michael, it's it's going to be a lot of fun to watch, and and I'm excited. I'm excited to watch kind of bottomless and and how you know you build the company and you're you're building with a lot of intent and a really interesting thesis. So really appreciate you coming on you know the show today and and, and sharing your thoughts and and really looking forward to uh, you know to watching how you build out the company. Thanks a lot. Uh, this was really a fun podcast to record. So I had a good time. <laughs>